You are listening to the podcast of the Y Church of the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. Sherry is going to read scripture for us this morning. So 1 Thessalonians 4, the opening dozen verses or so. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God. And that is this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. All right. Thank you, Sherry, for reading. Well, when I think of the upcoming holiday in just a couple of days here, I have a new sense of appreciation for Independence Day. And that is related to a book I told you a couple weeks back I was reading this year called 1776. It's by David McCullough. And a few days ago I finished it. And in the closing pages, in his final analysis, McCullough was right when he says, the war was a longer, far more arduous, and more painful struggle than later generations would understand or sufficiently appreciate. And I felt like he was writing about me. I thought, that's exactly right. There is so much that I learned in these pages that I didn't understand, things that I didn't appreciate. For instance, I didn't realize that in terms of percentage of lives lost, it was the costliest war in American history except for the Civil War. So 25,000 Americans died in the Revolutionary War, which was a full 1% of the population. So just to put that in terms that mean a little bit more in our context, if Elk River is about 25,000 people, that means we would have lost 250 men out of this community, many of them in their teens. The average age was between 18 and 20. Nor did I know this, and I'm going to quote McCullough once more. The year 1776, celebrated as the birth year of the nation, was for those who carried the fight for independence forward a year of all too few victories, of sustained suffering, disease, hunger, desertion, cowardice, disillusionment, defeat, terrible discouragement, and fear as they would never forget, but also of phenomenal courage and bedrock devotion to country.
So here we are as followers of Christ, coming up on the 4th of July, and we get to celebrate our country. We get to remember our history and honor those who died for our freedom. And at the same time, as Christ followers, we get to hold these things in right perspective. Because we have a king whose kingdom is not of this world. And whose people, he says, will come from every tribe, nation, and tongue on earth. And so we hold both of these truths in their proper order. And we can say on the 4th of July and every day of the year, I am proud to be an American. And yet we're reminded from the Apostle Paul, my citizenship is ultimately in heaven. So as we come to the text before us, and I think about this table question, one of the things that we should treasure most of all in this country is that we get to own Bibles. And places can print Bibles, and we get to go buy them in a store or online, and you can give a Bible to a friend, and we can read them in public. Something to be treasured. An unfathomable idea in all too many places in the world. It was this kind of gratitude that a couple years ago motivated us to translate the Gospel of Mark into the Timbaro language for a people group of 100,000, four times that Revolutionary War number, so that they could read about Jesus in their own language. And it's also why we remember and pray for the persecuted church, where even if they have a Bible in their own language, they would own it or read it at much risk to their own life. So these dog days of summer, we're in the midst of 1 Thessalonians. We're just making our way through chapter by chapter. And yet next week, we're going to take a one-Sunday break as we install Pastor Andrew Dvorak, and we have our Germany mission team that will commission and send off. And for that occasion, I just kept going back to the pastoral epistles. And so we're going to be in 1 Timothy for one Sunday next week. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is on tap for today. By this point in this letter that we've been reading, Paul is now shifting into the imperatives and into application. So he's worked his way through three chapters of teaching, and now it's time to apply it to some specific challenges that are happening in Thessalonica. So chapter 4, verse 1, leads off the application. That's going to appear as the overarching theme of everything that follows. And I'm going to share that first, and then we'll have two examples of how he brings that principle to bear as we make our way through the rest of the text. But here's that first imperative principle. Number one, live to please God. That's the summary of verse one. Live to please God. Now, that sounds nice, but what does it mean to please God? I really like the way one writer put it. He said, pleasing God means that I'm serving him in a way that makes his interests my primary ambition. Again, definition of pleasing God means I'm serving Him in a way that makes His interests my primary ambition. I think of our friend Pastor Charvez down at Greater Friendship Missionary Baptist Church in Minneapolis. And this fall, we're going to do the backpack drive again, so keep your eyes peeled for that. But as I spent time with him, he told me what's really the motto of their congregation these days in South Minneapolis. He says, we want what God wants. And I wish I could say it like him because it sounded a lot better. But he says, we want what God wants. It's the Apostle Paul saying, live to please God. 
So here it is in verse 1, the whole thing. Brothers and sisters, he says, We instructed you in how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. So we've said it in weeks past. We'll say it again. We see it right here. The Thessalonians, Paul has such affection for them, and he's commending them for their faithfulness. As in fact you are living, he says. And I find the same could be said here. I see it happening Sunday after Sunday and week after week. You are seeking Jesus. We're seeking Him together. And you are living to please God. But what's Paul saying to us? He's saying don't rest on your laurels. Don't think you've made it and the finish line is behind you and you're going to put things in cruise control and just drift off to sleep. Don't lose the fervor that you once had. But he says, no, we ask you and we urge you, not on our authority, but in the Lord Jesus, to do this more and more. If you were to ask our Elk River football team how they're feeling about this season, you know, last year they won the championship. If you were to ask them, are you satisfied and so you don't really care what happens this season, you haven't seen them starting practice yet because they are right back to work, hungry for more. And here in 1 Thessalonians, it's like Paul is the coach in the middle of the huddle and he's saying, great job, guys. But there's even more to be had. I commend you, and yet don't stop now, but press in further. What God has called us to in Christ is the life of discipleship. And while it's still fresh in my mind, I want to tell you about an assignment that I had about a month ago when I was out in California and was attending class for a couple weeks. The focus of the residency this year, the entire two weeks, was on discipleship. So class every day is block lecture from 9 to 5 for two weeks. All we talked about was discipleship. And we were given this assignment, that by the end of the two weeks, that Friday, you had to stand before the class and you had to present your own definition of discipleship. It was just a wonderful exercise. And I came up with an extended definition and then distilled it down into a shorter version. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. So here it is, and you could tweak it. You know, I don't know if this is 100% right on target or not, but this is what I came up with after two weeks. Discipleship is believing the gospel, following the Lord, and becoming like Christ. So you see that it has three components. It begins with believing, with trusting that Jesus is who He said He is. He's the Son of God who came and died for my sins and rose from the grave. That's the gospel. And discipleship begins there when you come to faith in Christ. Secondly, discipleship is following the Lord. You think about how this happens in the Bible. It's still the same way today. He calls His disciples to come and follow. They they drop what they're doing, whether it's Nets or Levi leaving the tax collector's booth, and they come and they follow Him and they learn from Him and they do what He says. And then thirdly, we recognize that discipleship is a process. As a disciple on this journey of following Jesus, the Holy Spirit is at work in me so that I can become more like Christ. So my life starts to look more like Jesus' life. I'm reflecting His character. As our mission says, I'm sharing His love. And I think the definition of discipleship has everything to do with this opening verse in 1 Thessalonians 4. 
Live to please God. And next, from there, with that established, Paul moves into the application of that principle. So there's two things in the next several verses that Paul wants to address in the Thessalonian church. But before we get to them, I want to make sure that we understand what the gospel is about so that we hear this in the right tone. Because some of us will hear the imperatives in Scripture. We'll hear the commands, do this, don't do that. And if we're not careful, we will perceive it as the terms of our relationship with God. In other words, I better do this, or I I better not do this, or I won't be on God's good side. And I want to make sure we're crystal clear about this before we put them up on the screen. Tim Keller, who died not long ago, just this spring, I think put it in a beautiful, simple way for us. Here's what he says. The gospel is not religion. Religion operates on the principle of I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel operates on the principle of I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Do you see the difference? So it comes in the rest of this passage. What God commands us to do comes from the gospel. It's obedience that flows out of an identity that says, I am loved, I am forgiven, I'm accepted where I stand in Christ. And it's motivated now by this joyful desire to please God. It's motivated out of a heart of worship, not religious hoop jumping. So with that principle firmly in mind, here's the heading over verses 2 to 8. Live in sexual purity. That's the summary of verses 2 to 8. Now some of you, I can see it, you got really uncomfortable all of a sudden. (laughs) Because here it is, a long holiday weekend. You know, we should probably just take things a little lighter, but nope, we're going straight for the jugular talking about the birds and the bees. At church, nonetheless. But here has been our approach all these years. That if the Bible talks about it, well, then we should talk about it. It's really that simple. And so today, you know, we're making our way through First Thessalonians. And chapter 4 just happens to be about living in sexual purity. So verse 2, let's start there. Paul says to the Thessalonians, For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now remember the context here. There's Paul and Silas who founded the church in Thessalonica. So what are they doing as they're writing? They're thinking back to when they were there, when the church was founded, and the first Thessalonians were coming to faith and believing the gospel and following Jesus. And the apostles spent, we talked about it, was it a number of weeks or a few months that they were there, but they laid the foundation of what it means to follow Jesus, and they're building the church, and church leadership is being established that is built on biblical principles. So that's the instruction that they had already given, and it included instruction on sexuality and on relationships. And I love Paul's emphasis that it was by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So what he's saying is this is not something that we just drew up on our own. This is not their opinion about debatable or subjective matters or their own authority on which they're giving these teachings. No, he's saying this is the Word of God, the authority of Jesus. 
And I think we can take heart in that today. When we recognize that, you know, my desire is not to stand up here and share my opinion with you about sexuality or about any other subject. That's very simple. Very simple. I want to show you what the Bible says so that then we can do it together and we can live to please God. So verse 3, Paul now brings it right to a point and he says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. God's will, His design and purpose for you in all spheres of your life is that you should be sanctified. And that's the third part of my definition from earlier, becoming like Christ. God has set you apart. He has called you as His own. And He is in this process of refining you, making your character more like Christ, that you would be holy and live in a way that pleases Him. And one of the ways that we do that is by avoiding sexual immorality. And what we recognize throughout Scripture from front to back is it's not a call to partial moderation or a view that would say, well, at least I don't fill in the blank like so-and-so, where we would just measure ourselves against something more severe. But no, it means to abstain completely from all forms of sexual immorality. And lest that sound heavy-handed, i got to tell you, this is from a biblical perspective, there is great joy and freedom in this command. I told our students on Wednesday night, I can't remember if it was uh, high school or middle school, we were spending some time together, and, and I said, if you want the most fulfilling sexuality, I think I put it in crasser terms than that, but we'll keep it PG this morning since we don't have Sunday school. But if you want the most fulfilling sexuality, if you want to experience that as the best it can be, then do it God's way. He created it after all. You know, some of us maybe grew up in a home where this was like a taboo subject. We didn't talk about it. It was almost treated as something dirty. No, it's something amazing and pure and holy the way that God designed it. And He knows best. Our leadership team developed a leadership covenant quite a few years ago that governs for leadership the way that we want to posture ourselves toward God, uh, toward one another, and toward the church that we get to serve. And one of those nine bullet points, and it covers all facets of life, one of the nine is that we would live in sexual purity in all of our relationships and in every facet of life. And where do we get that from? Well, it's from passages just like this. And now here's the basis, and you can see Paul, and we're not going to read all these verses, but he vacillates from sort of the negative command to the positive. Just wonderful how he describes this. Verse 7 in your Bible. And this is the basis. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Now we want to step back in time and just explore the world of Thessalonica for a second. Because the setting in which the church was founded and to which Paul is now writing was a place that was hypersexualized and was extremely permissive and public in the way this was lived out. So they worshipped Dionysus, or also known as Bacchus. 
They worshipped Aphrodite, Osiris, and Isis, the Capirus, Priapus, my list goes on and on. And all of these different things, cultural influences, promoted sexual license. So in Thessalonica, what the Bible would call sexual immorality was completely normalized. And it's in that setting that men and women and young people are coming to faith in Christ. And it's in that setting that we recognize, boy, this doesn't sound a whole lot different than our time. 2,000 years later, we find Satan continues to take the beauty of God's design and he continues to take it and twist it and mar it so that he can bring many people and in fact whole cultures into ruin. And I've often thought, so I'm doing a practically oriented doctorate. It's called a doctor of ministry. But if, if somebody was doing research work that, uh, in a different facet, it's not going to be me. But I've thought about, you, you could write about this subject and look at what were the strong cultural components that perhaps led to the fall of the Roman Empire. What was going on in their world that led to this? And, and how would it contrast with our own time? And you see so many similarities. The lure of wealth, wealth and affluence, an unhealthy obsession with sports. A thirst for violence. You know, you look at the movie like The Gladiator depicts that, right? A thirst for violence. The excess of food. The overconsumption of food and alcohol. And sexual immorality. And I think that history probably shows us that no culture or nation can survive these things. Now on a positive note, that's about as heavy as we'll get this morning. On a positive note, what we recognize, what Paul calls us to here, is we get to live a different way. And furthermore, and this is so important, and I think, you know, Fred, your story this morning in the Beginner's Bible is right on the mark. We get to love our neighbors who don't know about Jesus yet and who are not living in this way. Not shake a finger, not write them off and retreat to our little church bubble, But we get to show the world that there is a better way. There is joy. There is freedom. There is peace. And we get to say, hey, I'm still a work in progress. But i got to tell you about how God is rewriting my story. So live in sexual purity, says Paul. And then here's the other application point. And it's going to swing to something very different, doesn't it? Number three, love one another in your public conduct and work. The love one another comes from verse 9. Now about your love for one another, the word there is Philadelphia, by the way, about your brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. So here we see it again. He's like, boy, I almost don't need to write about this to you. He's commending the Thessalonians for how they love each other. This is what a church family is called to do, and they're doing it. But Paul says in verse 10, here we see it again, there's more and more. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, 19 times, by the way, it says brothers and sisters in this letter, to do so more and more. And then he addresses an apparent challenge that's come up and caused some friction. In fact, you know how he says, now about your love for one another? They think that Timothy brought a letter back with the report where the Thessalonians wrote about some of the challenges and some of the things going on. 
And there's this issue of friction. There's something that has come up in the family of Christ. You ever have friction come up in your family at home and you got to call a family meeting? That's exactly what they're doing. And in Thessalonica, some of the believers, here's what's behind this. They were leaning on the institution of patronage, which is very foreign to us in many ways, but a huge part of the Greco-Roman world. It's foreign to us in a sense, but there will be specific applications, so hang in there. But essentially, some of the, the Thessalonians were still living, so they had decided to follow Jesus. They believed the gospel. They're on their way. They're loving one another well. And yet they're still living in this way that has them entrenched in an unhealthy political system that ruled Thessalonica. There are loyal patrons who are essentially paying them for support in the public arena. And because they're clients of these wealthy patrons, they didn't have to work. They had just this fierce loyalty to whoever was paying their bills. And so then it would just cause all kinds of havoc in community, as you can imagine. And that is, for them, what's behind the admonition in verse 11. Make it your ambition to do three things. Lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. And work with your hands. And all three of those, even if we don't have a patronage client culture, all three of those we can apply. And we recognize our conduct, how you and I carry ourselves, is a key aspect of our testimony. Whether it's at school or at work or how you're involved and engaged in our community. It matters. Paul is saying it all matters to God. And here then is the summary of the entire passage. I call it the big idea. Here it is. Live to please God in every square inch of your life. Live to please God in every square inch of your life. To close, I want to return to that book and a final lesson from the life of George Washington. Did you know that Washington and all his skills and abilities, there were things that he was not very good at? Did you know that? I didn't know that until reading just this last week. There were things that he messed up. There were things that could have easily cost the war. I'm going to quote from the book. Here's the list. He was not a brilliant strategist or tactician. Not a gifted orator. That means public speaker. Not an intellectual. At several crucial moments, he had shown marked indecisiveness. He had made serious mistakes in judgment. Anybody feeling a little better about your life now? (laughs) Oh, I'm not that different from George Washington. But listen to this. But experience had been his great teacher from boyhood. And in this, his greatest task, he learned steadily from experience. Above all, Washington never forgot what was at stake, and he never gave up. And I was thinking to myself as I finished the book this week, how would that last description sound if it was describing the Christian life? 
The life of the genuine believer on his or her way with Jesus. So, you know, in the book it said he learned from experience, never forgot, never gave up. And I thought, well, how would that sound if we applied it here? I'm going to give you what I came up with and we're going to personalize it. All right, so remember, all these things that you and I are not good at, all these things that we've messed up, just like Washington, but the Holy Spirit has been your great teacher. In Christ, that is true. And you have learned steadily from the Holy Spirit. Above all, as you continue learning, may you never forget what? The Word of God. And may you rest assured that God never gives up on you. Well, let's pray together. Let's bow and close. Lord, we thank you for your word which brings life. It's your word, Lord, that says that you did not send your son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And I pray, Lord, that you would propel us out of this place with good news upon our lips and freedom and forgiveness in our hearts. We pray, Lord, for our own Thessalonica as we approach this wonderful holiday this week. We thank you, Lord. We have so many blessings beyond what we can realize because we live in this place. We thank you for our nation, Lord. We thank you for the leaders that are appointed to responsibility, and we pray for them at every level of government. We pray, Lord, for wisdom. We ask for your favor. And we also ask for your forgiveness, Lord, in the ways in which we live that grieve your heart and are contrary to your will. We pray, Lord, for a good second half of the year in our city, our state, our country, and that your name would be known. Now together we pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.